0: Welcome back to the Health Call Radio Hour. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just drop us a line on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. That's healthcall.live. Or message us on the Health Call Facebook page. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. America's food supply is amazingly safe. Outbreaks of foodborne
1: disease in this country are very rare, but a new report says our food supply raises a different type of health threat, and it's one we need to be aware of because of its vast implications. I learned about all of this in a report called Animal Markets and Zoonotic Disease in the United States. It says hundreds of millions of animals farmed and imported every year are a perfect petri dish where viruses can mix and mingle. The big worry is that sooner or later, a flu virus could emerge, creating a deadly pandemic, just like the Spanish flu pandemic of 1917 that killed millions. Ann Linder is the Associate Director of Policy and Research at the Brooks-McCormick Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School and one of the authors of this report. I asked her to kick us off, with the basics and just explain what is zoonotic disease threat?
2: So when we say zoonotic disease, we're talking about diseases that move from animals into human populations. Um, And so anything that moves from animals to humans is something we would consider zoonotic and potentially problematic for our own health.
1: Our COVID experience is probably the most recent example, although, you know, I have to tell you, I'm on board with those people who lean more toward the lab leak than the wet market theory. But that aside, uh, tell me more about uh, what we learned about wet markets and the surprising news about uh, those in the United States.
2: Sure. So, well, we might think of wet markets or as we call them, live animal food markets as sort of something that happens elsewhere. These are also common within the United States as well. So just in New York City alone, we have about 84 live animal markets. And those are any site where you might have live animals that are stored alive and then sort of slaughtered on demand for customers. And they do tend to present high risks of zoonotic spillover where disease can move from animals into humans for those
1: reasons. I'm surprised to hear that. So what type of animals are we, not the exotics that we were hearing about in the Chinese markets, right? No pangolins or anything
2: like that? Uh, Very few pangolins. Um, But we do have live animal food markets that slaughter wildlife here in the U.S. as well. Typically, it's um, amphibians um, and fish, Um, although in these markets in New York City, predominantly they're poultry markets, although some of them, um, about 25 percent, also have larger animals, so cows, pigs, sheep. Um, And they tend to be problematic in part because they have so many different species and different species of poultry there. Um, So there's a lot of opportunities for disease to move from one species into another. Yeah, let's
1: talk about the poultry exposure specifically, because my understanding is there's some belief that the Spanish flu pandemic may have started in uh, the avian markets, or not avian markets, but in birds. Um, So let's walk that through a little bit. What makes poultry so dangerous?
2: So if you speak to any, any virologist, they'll tell you that influenza's are sort of the type of virus we should be most concerned about as far as a human pandemic. And that's for a lot of reasons, Um, predominantly because they're able to change so quickly. Um, They're very highly communicable person to person. Um, And so these are the types of virus that we're most worried about when we think about kind of a next human pandemic. Um, And those viruses typically migrate from wild birds, which are sort of the natural reservoirs of influenza, into domestic poultry, and then sometimes... To humans um, or to pigs and then to humans through some sort of intermediate host. So, when we think about poultry in particular, there's always concerns about influenza. We're living through the largest avian influenza outbreak of all time right now, um, which has left 50 million birds dead so far.
1: Wait, wait, wait a second. I'm not sure everybody's in tune with that. <laughs> there is an avian influenza pandemic underway right now. So,
2: um, among there's a large Avian influenza outbreak among poultry. It has spilled over to a handful of people, but it has not spread person to person. So when we think about a pandemic, there's spillover from an animal to a human. And then from there, that virus could stop or could continue spreading. And if it becomes transmissible as COVID was, for example, person to person, then that's when you would expect a large scale outbreak. So right now, It's killed about 58 million birds on U.S. farms, um, and it has infected one man in Colorado, but it didn't move on from there, and we hope it won't, but that's where we are now.
1: 58 million birds killed by this uh, flu virus, or I (laughs) I assume they were euthanized, right? I mean, they they weren't all killed by the virus itself.
2: Yes, yes, so either killed or culled. If there's an outbreak on an industrial farm, for example, some of which are quite large and might carry you know 5 million birds at a single site, Um, They'll kill every bird um, to try and prevent the spread. And it's also spread through those live animal markets in New York City that we talked about and a host of other different forms of animal industry.
1: And that is the reason that egg prices went crazy recently, I'm going to assume. Is that correct?
2: Um, That certainly had something to do with it. um, But there's a lot of concerns, sort of in the poultry industry um, and also among public health experts. We've seen avian influenza infect mink. Um, in Spain and potentially, you know, gain this ability to spread mammal to mammal, which is what we're really worried about when we think about uh, a a future human pandemic.
1: Yeah, let me just drill down on this avian threat just a little bit deeper. So how is it, you know, these, these industrial scale chicken farms, they're, you know, the buildings are large, but they're all seemingly enclosed. How is it that wild birds carrying a virus are going to infect a commercial crop?
2: So there's a lot of different potential pathways um, that that virus could get into that facility, including sort of tracked in on the shoes of workers, um, through the air potentially. Um, but, But really, I think the important point to remember is that even though there's extremely high biosecurity measures in place at those commercial facilities, there's no such thing as perfect biosecurity. So this virus has infiltrated not just one facility, but hundreds of them over and over again. So while we're doing everything we can to prevent it from spreading, these are really highly infectious pathogens. And so um, to a certain extent, you know, we're doing the best we can and the best we can is not perfect.
1: So it's not just um, the the, uh, poultry crop that you are concerned about. Your report points out many other potential risks that I'm sure well, I never thought of, so I'm assuming other people haven't either. Let's talk through some of those. What is the risk of going to the zoo? It seems like millions of us go to the zoo and enjoy visiting the zoo. Is that a risk?
2: I mean, anytime you have humans and animals interacting in close proximity, there is a risk for spillover. There's a lot of things that might mitigate that risk if those animals you're interacting with are healthy. Um, if you're outside and you know, sort of everything we would think about with COVID. As far as going to the zoo, you know, it really depends on what kind of zoo you're going to. If you go to a a sort of well-respected AZA zoo, there's not a lot of interaction between customers um, and wild animals. But there's also a host of what we would call roadside zoos where you can, you know, they're essentially sort of petting zoos with wild animals and you can hand feed them. um, And the risk of spillover is much greater in those cases where you have those more sort of intimate interactions between customers and the wildlife.
1: So there is also, uh, your report points out, a risk from some animal farming that I think, again, pretty not on the radar for most people, um, including crocodile farming. Tell
2: me about that, alligator and crocodile. Um, so we do farm-raise um, alligators and crocodiles here in the U.S. Uh, it's, it's really predominantly alligators, I should say. Okay, sure. Um, but there has been cases where West Nile virus has moved from farmed alligators into humans. Um, and we farm-raise wildlife in a lot of different forms, um, much the way we would think of raising livestock here in the U.S. So um, it's not just alligator farming. You know, we farm camels, we farm deer, we farm Mink, we farm all kinds of wild species, um, many of which can, can be host to zoonotic pathogens.
1: Did you know we commercially farm alligators and camels in the US? I mean, <laughs> that was news to me. When we come back, Ann Linder, the author of a study on zoonotic risk, explains why roadside zoos and even the county fair are a danger point for animal viruses crossing into humans. Plus, what's the answer to this problem? What would make us all safer? That's just ahead. On the Health Call Radio Hour.
0: This is the Health Call Radio Hour, where treatments are always free, the stethoscope is never cold, and you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent Lee Kelso. I have great memories of taking my kids to the county fair.
1: As city kids, it was a rare opportunity for them to see, smell, and touch farm animals. Well, according to a new report, that could be how a dangerous pandemic is born. The CDC says the first cases of swine flu crossing over to humans this year has already happened at a fair in Michigan. Two children came down with the H1N1V influenza. They were treated and they're doing fine, but that is exactly the type of zoonotic disease risk and Linder highlights in a new report that says America's next pandemic could be homegrown.
2: So I think when we're talking about zoonotic risk here in the U.S., there's a tendency to sort of frame this as an over-there problem, that this is something we don't really have to worry about um, being the source of here in the developed world. But there's also papers that have found that more zoonotic diseases emerge from the U.S. than any other country in the world in the second half of the 20th century, Um, and in particular viruses like viruses that come from swine, for example, at state and county fairs, we've been Um, the source of more swine origin influenzas than any other country in the last decade. So we we do have risk here. I think what we're talking about is whether or not those outbreaks turn into pandemics. And in that case, we have been lucky, I would say, but it is a game of odds. Um, And the more interactions, the more risk, and it's all sort of additive and cumulative in that way. So we do have risk here. We use and process more animals than almost any other country on Earth. So we absolutely have risk
1: swine fever, African swine fever, is a huge problem in China ongoing and elsewhere around the world. We've, you know, I know that, uh, you know, pork producers are very, very cautious about that. What's the risk of, is it, is it the swine fever that's the risk or is it again a swine flu?
2: Um, it's going to be influenza risk. So those same influenzas we talked about in poultry, often reach humans by moving through swine and pig tend to be kind of perfect mixing vessels for influenza because they can be co-infected with multiple different strains. So you might have a pig that gets infected from, you know, the chicken on its right and a different strain of influenza from another pig or from a human and then can create a third strain that might be transmissible to people. And, and so there's a good chance that if you keep combining new strains, you might hit on something yeah. that could be transmissible person to person.
1: Pigs become a blender where viruses get together and crazy things can yes. happen. And I'm old enough to remember the uh, swine flu outbreak. I think it was in 2009. I mean, about yes. a million people hospitalized. Is that what I recall?
2: Yes, I think that is correct. And we think, you know, the number infected was, was something much, much larger. Yeah. So yeah. yeah.
1: Should I never go to a roadside farm? Should I not go to the county fair? I mean, what, do, what this might be frightening for some people.
2: You know, I think there's a lot of sort of common sense um, safety measures that can really reduce your risk. The risk is greatest to children. Often in these outbreaks, the median patient age is about seven years old. So these are kids who are touching the animals, touching their face, touching their food, you know, eating cotton candy. And you can really imagine um, sort of how things would go from there. So there's a lot of ways that we can reduce our risk. Um, there are practices that I think are going on in the U.S. that are, are very high risk and perhaps maybe not sort of justified um, as far as be the benefit that they provide.
1: Oh, we'll tick off a few of those. What's high risk? Help me understand that.
2: I think fur farming is one industry that, that comes to mind. Um, we saw during the COVID-19 outbreak that many mink on fur farms were infected and in some cases builds new variants of the virus back into humans. Um, And so that's another way in which these animal industries can be potentially dangerous. You can take, um, you know, a virus that's circulating in a livestock worker, for example, spread it to the animals. It might change within that animal population and then can reinfect a worker with a slightly different version that could be more dangerous. And so mink farms in particular are, are sort of one place where you see a lot of these different risk factors collide. You have high risk species of wildlife. Um, who potentially might be able to transmit viruses to humans that allow those viruses to circulate and spread. I had
1: no idea mink farming, fur farming was still a thing in the United States. I, what kind of scale are we talking about in the United States? Significant?
2: So we have about 3 million Mink, We think in U.S. farms when those outbreaks of COVID happened on U.S. farms, in some cases, policymakers didn't know if or where or how many mink farms existed in that state. Um, So that is a real sort of liability that can um, can increase response times in a in a way that's dangerous. So we think there's about three million mink, give or take. And there's also other forms of fur farming. Fox is, is the next most common species after mink here in the U.S., but it still happens on, on quite a good scale um, with almost no regulation in some cases. You don't even need a license.
1: So is that what your report is, advocating more regulation?
2: I think we're advocating more effective regulation. Um, in some cases, there are these sort of wide regulatory gaps. Captive wildlife is a great example because These are animals that are not regulated by the USDA, which deals with livestock, and they're also not regulated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which regulates free-roaming wildlife. So they really fall into this kind of regulatory void, Um, but at the same time, they're presenting a very serious risk. Um, As I said, we just saw an influenza outbreak on a a fur farm in Spain um, that caused a lot of hand-wringing about the potential for that virus to spread mammal to mammal, and and cause a human pandemic from there. So these are, are really dangerous interactions that are happening with very little to no oversight. Um, so we're advocating that that we take a closer look as far as risks and balances and and try to mitigate that risk where we can.
1: So give me an example of what type of animals come into the country kind of under the radar. I' you know I don't know what's going on. Can you enlighten me?
2: Sure. So the United States is the largest importer of live wildlife in the world. Um, By some estimates, we bring in about 200 million live wild animals a year, and many of those are not undergoing any kind of health or safety checks when they come into the country. Um, But they're bringing in a huge amount of of wildlife from all over the world. Um, They also go to research labs and roadside zoos and and a host of other kind of um, enterprises, captive hunting ranches, you name it. And there's very little that's being done as far as um, examining their Their health.
1: So, the goal of your report then is to just shine a light on this problem, I assume. And then, secondly, what is there a policy change that you are specifically advocating for?
2: Sure. So, I think a lot of the work we've done so far has been to try to map this landscape of risk um, and to point out sort of where these animal industries operate in the U.S how those supply chains work, those interconnections, and, and where risk lives within those different supply chains. As far as policy reform, a lot of what we're doing here is is laying out the fact that we don't really have a comprehensive strategy to deal with these issues right now, and there are wide gaps. And most often when we're regulating animals, we're not regulating them for our own health and safety. We're regulating them for conservation purposes. Are they an endangered species or things like that? But those types of measures really do very little to reduce disease risk. Um, And so we're advocating for a more unified strategy that, that eliminates many of those dangerous gaps we talked about and adds that kind of disease directive that we need in order to protect ourselves.
1: So does this mean the county fair and your local zoo are off limits? Well, not for me, but it makes sense to follow basic hand hygiene practices after a visit with Porky Pig or your neighbor's backyard chickens. America's livestock producers already take extensive precautions to keep us and the food they raise safe. A clear understanding of the risks, that's a good place to start to enhance food safety. So I'll include a link to this report on the Health Call website. That's healthcall.live, healthcall.live. And with the podcast of today's broadcast, you'll find it in all the major services. The report is an interesting read that's filled with surprises. At least it was for me. Hey, you know, the clock is king in radio, so we've got to run. But I hope that you'll be listening again next week for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour.
0: You've been listening to the Health Call Radio Hour. The discussion of conditions and treatments on this program is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a healthcare professional who knows you and your health needs. Find the podcast of today's episode wherever you get your podcasts or watch extended video versions of today's interviews on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. While you're there, drop us a line to ask a question or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us each week on this station for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour. Podcasts by Federated Media.